This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Is that? Yeah. Uh, good. good. Uh, Shalom Aleichem to Rabbi Gladstein and Mr. Veltner as well. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for rushing out of the door much Shabbos to catch the flight. Boshan, you made it, and we are very happy you made it over here. Then, of course, a big thank you to Shalom Safain for hosting this Yachekala. And thank you so much. And um, there's one person over here I want to thank as well, and he unfortunately is not here, and that is Nafti Elberg. And I hope the Mishpoch will give uh, our thank you to Nafti. Nafti has contributed a great deal in making this Yachikala possible, and he has gone through straight lengths, and he put in a lot of effort. Unfortunately, he has, has Corona, so he is not here, but we wish him for Shalima. And um, we wish him that soon he'll be able to resume his activities, his learning, everything he does for the community. Rabbi Ratzstein, I have been waiting for you for half a year since it's been last time. I don't need to, you don't need much more introduction, so please go ahead. Thank you so much, Rabbi Katz, and all the Chashev Rabbanim. It's real honor and pleasure to be with you in this community. You know, uh, when you live somewhere, you very often take for granted the special qualities of the place that you live. I was just reading on Shabbos that through these streets here in Amsterdam, the Chida, Reb Chaim Yosef David Azulai, met with Reb Shaul of Amsterdam, right here, in the weeks before Purim. What an amazing encounter. Who could even picture such a thing? That right here, you see, I, I'm, I'm in New York. Who is in New York? I don't know. Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio. These are players on the Yankees. There were no, there were no tzaddikim, historical tzaddikim in New York. But here, you had great luminaries who graced this city. You don't know about the New York Yankees? Okay, I'm going to give you a sheer on the New York Yankees. You know, baseball, Major League Baseball? And I'm just joking. We're not going to talk about that. We're here this... Uh, for this, at this Yarche Kala, to elevate ourselves, to grow, to climb higher, to come closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The thing is that the way the human mind works, we tend to conjure up and to picture up what mitzvahs and which masim toivim will elevate us and bring us closer to Hashem, but that doesn't necessarily mean those are the main keys and those are the main avenues to bring us closer to Hashem. The Mesilas Hisham, the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata, who also graced the city. He writes, Hachasidus Hoamiti, Hu Rachaik Mitzirasichlenu. True piety, true righteousness is very far from our mind's eye. In other words, the Yetzir Hara likes to distort what real righteousness is. So we have to examine some of the personalities in the Chumash. You know, how did they get where they got? How were they elevated that they became the all-time great luminaries? Let's talk about Moshe Rabbeinu. Once upon a time, there was a man by the name of Moshe Rabbeinu. And he's shepherding his sheep. Perfect. And he encounters a bush, a thorn bush. 
and it's engulfed in fire. The bush is consumed in fire, but it's not being burnt. And Moshe Rabbeinu is not just looking at an unusual phenomenon. This is a prophetic image. Moshe Rabbeinu is encountering prophecy. And then Moshe Rabbeinu hears the resounding voice of God. Do you know in the history of the world, no individual ever heard God say their name consecutively without any pause? Moshe, Moshe? Nobody ever heard that. Not Yeshaya, not Yermia, not Yecheskel, even Avram Avinu at the Akedah. Vayoymer Avraham, psik! Avraham, there's an interruption, there's a separation. I knew you were bothered by that. See, the ladies were on to that. They knew Avraham, right? No, by Avraham there's a psik. There's an interruption. But Moshe Rabbeinu had unfiltered, unadulterated nevuah. We call this aspaklaria hamira. According to many Mepharshim, this first nevuah of Moshe Rabbeinu was with a clear prism. Moshe Rabbeinu is now experiencing the most powerful and intimate divine revelation in the history of the whole world. Nobody ever connected with Hashem on this level before. So we have to ask ourselves, so what did he do? What did the man do? You know, that means think about it. Nobody in the history ever of the world ever spoke to God so closely, so intimately, so face to face. What did Moshe Rabbeinu do that he was zoicha to this encounter? Isn't that an important question? Here it is. This is a man who experienced the highest level of communion with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What did he do? Did he go to the mikvah 19 times? Did he sit and he learn for four days straight? Did he, what did, did he give a lot of charity? My heart tells me the Torah gives us no information about what Moshe Rabbeinu did before this incident except for one Pasuk. You know what the Pasuk says? He took his sheep and he brought it to the desert. Says Rashi, you know the greatest treasures lay in the simple words of Rashi. We often take for granted, you know, we study Rashi and we think it's simple comments. The deepest and most powerful lessons lay in the simple words of Rashi. Says Rashi, why did Moshe Rabbeinu take his sheep out into the desert? Because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to steal money from somebody else. That is the only information we are given from Moshe Rabbeinu. We think, you know, you want to reach a very high level? Sit in the corner, say the Tehillim, go to the mikvah, all kinds of mitzvah samasim toivim. You know how Moshe achieved the highest level of nevuah? By not stealing nickels and dimes, and I'm sorry I'm using the wrong currency, but... He, he did not steal money from other people. This is sort of an eye-opening uh, revelation. Moshe Rabbeinu achieved the highest level of nevuah by avoiding gezela. And then God called out to him, Vayikra Eloikim mitoy chasna, Vayoymer Moshe, Moshe. Here we've gathered this, the next couple of days to try to elevate ourselves to try to study, to try to learn, to try to connect with Hashem. What's important to do is we need to identify what are the most effective ways to elevate ourselves as a Jew. What does a tzaddik look like? You know, 
If you wanted to know, who's the tzaddik in the shul? Who's the tzaddikus in the shul? You go on a yamim naram and you look in the shul. Oh, he must be the guy who has the talus over his head or the, the woman who's davening the longest shmana esrei is shuckling with the most, you know, the most uh, vibrations. You know who the biggest tzaddik is? The biggest tzaddik is someone who doesn't take a penny that doesn't belong to them. The biggest tzaddik is someone who can look at their bank account and be certain that every penny there belongs to them and they don't owe other people money. The great tzaddik Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, very interestingly, you know, he, if we could perhaps study, what would he do in preparation for Yom Kippur? You know, that might give us some insight in, you know, how does somebody really become a tzaddik? And Rabbi Yisrael one year went to his son-in-law, Rav David Marno, in the city of Krangula, and there was a certain elder there, a certain zakin there, who wanted to observe the preparations of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter for Yom Kippur. So he figured Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he'd wake up in the morning, and he probably would say the whole Tehillim, and then he would pray, and then he would learn, and then he would go to the mikvah. But let me tell you, Kach hayadarkoi shall Rabbi Yisrael Salanter be'erav yom ha'kippurim. He would eat the morning meal, and then after davening, he would daven, he would eat. He didn't go to the base medrash, he didn't go to the mikvah, he went into the kitchen. And what did he do in the kitchen? He went to the toolbox. And what did he take out of the toolbox? He took a hammer out of the toolbox. And he put the hammer under his coat. And then Rabbi Yisrael Salanter went on, and he visited one shul after another. And in these old shuls, in Salant, he went and he banged in the nails on all the benches so that the owner of the shul would not violate damaging people's pants on the holy day of Yom Kippur. And then he went into the women's section and he banged in all the nails on the chairs so that none of the women who came to the shul would tear their dress so that the owner of the shul would not violate stealing money from people who have to patch up their pants or their skirts. And then Rabbi Yisrael Salanter spent the rest of the day visiting the nine other shuls in Salant. Because more important than saying Tehillim and going to the mikvah for a man is not damaging other people. This was the practice of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter on Erev Yom Kippur. So you want aliyah, you want elevation, be careful in other people's money. You know, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter would comment that he heard about a group of righteous perushim. Perushim, you know, they wanted to separate from Inyana Yolam So they went and they secluded themselves and they began to study Shas. And they began to study Shas Masech Brachais. Masechta Shabbos, Masechta Erevin. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said they were dead wrong. It's a very nice idea to sit and to study Shas. They were wrong in learning Shas Keseidah in order. What's wrong with learning Shas in order? Says Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, why are you learning Masechta Brachais for starters? Brachais are mostly the Rabbanon, except for Brachas HaMozayin and Brachas HaToyra. It's mostly rabbinic. 
And then Shabbos, Shabbos is almost entirely Drabana. The Mesechta is almost entirely Drabana. And Erevin is almost... So they said, what should we learn? What should you learn? Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba Basra, monetary law, tort, shutfis. Because all of these laws are biblical. They're all the Iraisa. It's more important, says Rabbi Yisrael, to learn Chayish and Mishpat. Chayish and Mishpat are the laws of monetary law, than to learn Arachayim. Now that's something that's in our minds a little bit, uh, we don't focus on. You know, we're, we're always very careful to make sure, you know, am I starting davening correctly? Am I coming on time? Am I saying the words correctly? Am I, do I have a minion? You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I know people, and you should be machmer on this. I know people, they're machmer on minion like you can't believe. If, you go, if they go to an airport, they'll literally hire nine other people to meet them in the airport so that they don't miss a minion. And it's a beautiful thing, it's a wonderful thing. But they're not necessarily so careful not to take money that doesn't belong to them. And actually, on the totem pole of the value of the Torah, as important as Minyan is, and don't get me wrong, person has to go to whatever length they can to make sure they always dive in with the Minyan. I know uh, my grandfather, when he was in the camps, he risked his life to make a Minyan. I know what Minyan is. I appreciate the value of a Minyan. But still, on the totem pole, of the importance in Judaism, it's more important to be careful with money than to be careful with tefillah. And that, that sounds a little bit uh, unusual at first. You know, that's not what we're used to hearing. And um, I was asked to speak about this topic. You see, look, here I'm coming from New York. The last thing I want to come and speak to my friends here in Holland who are, were ni- are nice enough to uh, the Netherlands, that they're nice enough to bring me back. You know, I came here uh, in the summer. I'm not here to give Musar, you know, because you're not going to invite me back if I do that, you know. But it's important to always recognize. You know, David HaMelech says, Mi Hashem. Who will ascend the mountain? Who's going to ascend the mountain of spirituality? You know what the first thing is? Are your hands clean? Are your hands clean? Not Miyale Bahar Hashem, somebody who never misses a minion. That's beautiful, never to miss a minion. Not Miyale Bahar Hashem, someone who doesn't eat Gebrakstan on Pesach. It's a very nice minhag, according to some. The Grud didn't think so, but when it comes to other things, when it comes to Pesach, how careful people are. How many months in advance, so many women, there would be thousands of women here, but they're, they're cleaning for Pesach already. <laughs> really? The, I, I heard the registration was uh, thousands, but then they found out we're ready within four months of Pesach. But it's important to clean for Pesach. But more important than cleaning for Pesach is making sure that every dollar is accounted for, that you're confident that you're the rightful owner. You know, I want to share with you something. When I was a bachar in yeshiva, 
So I learned in Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim. Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim, I'll give you a little, uh, a little, little insight into the Yeshiva scene in New York. You see, there are a lot of Yeshivas in New York. A lot of them are in Brooklyn. You ever hear of Brooklyn? There's a country called Brooklyn. No, it's not a country. It's, it's an area in New York. A lot of the Yeshivas are there. You have Chaim Berlin. You have Tarvadas. You have the Mir Yeshiva. You have a lot of Yeshivas over there. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim. I started in Brooklyn. There's a Brooklyn branch. And then I was in what they call the mothership. That's like uh, the nickname for it. The main Chafetz Chaim is in Queens. In Ke- uh, when I started, it was in some, a place called Forest Hills. And then it moved to Kew Garden Hills. By the way, oh, this is a great story, you know? I didn't even think of it. The Rosh Hashiva of Chafetz Chaim, <coughs> Rav Henach Libowitz, he was renowned that, look, a lot of yeshivas, they're looking for ways to supplement uh, the income that comes in. You know, tuition doesn't cover the cost of the yeshiva. So there are all kinds of government programs you could get to bring money into the yeshiva. Rav Henoch did not utilize any government program unless it was 1,000% kashar v'yashar. You know, he once had an opportunity to take money for the yeshiva, he would, got, he would have gotten a very big donation if the yeshiva would have made a Holocaust memorial. So you think that's a great idea. Why not make a Holocaust memorial on the yeshiva? He, he would have gotten something like $100,000. And he said, I'm not doing it. So the Talmud said, why not? $100,000 for the yeshiva? He said, the yeshiva is not a museum. The is not a museum. The Holocaust is very important, and everyone has to remember it. But a yeshiva is not a museum. It's not a straight way to get money for a yeshiva. I mean, so what? It's not, it's not like it's devious. It's not like it's... It's not like it's... Uh, but it's not yashar. He didn't feel it was yashar. He didn't, he didn't take it. He would always say, my books are open. It's very rare, by the way, for a yeshiva to operate this way. The problem was that yeshiva Chafetz Chaim more than other yeshivas, they struggled bringing in the income because, you know, as they say, nice guys don't always finish first, you know. So a very big miracle happened to the yeshiva. Another problem the yeshiva had is in Chafetz Chaim, most of the alumni go into Chinuch or Habatzah Satayra. See, in other yeshivas, you could become a Rebbe, a Rosh Shiva, and if not, so you become a businessman and you support the yeshiva. But in Chafetz Chaim, like 90% of the Talmidim went into Habatzah's Torah, which is great, that's what the yeshiva wants. The problem is, there's no one to support the yeshiva. So a very big miracle happened to the yeshiva. I'm, I'm just telling you, it just came to mind. The yeshiva was renowned for 50 years. You know, every yeshiva has like a mailer. The yeshiva gave out calendars. The, the famous Chafetz Chaim calendar. You know, you open it up, it tells you candle lighting time and... You know, when I first became a Rav, this is, I'm, I'm digressing, when I first became a Rav, so uh, I was interviewing for a, for a post, I was a kid coming out of Yeshua, out of Koilo. So they asked me, are you a Poisek? So I'm like thinking to myself, am I a Poisek? I don't know, I learned the Mishnah Brewer, I know I can answer questions. I'm, I'm. So I went to ask my Rebbe, Rebbe said, when, they, when the Shul asks, are you a Poisek, they mean, do you know how to read the calendar and let them know what time candle lighting is? That's what a Poisek is. Anyway, <laughs> the yeshiva would mail calendars to people, to Jews across America. 
A homeless man receives the calendar. This homeless man lived in a car. He died. He left over $20 million to be divided between Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim and the Diskin Orphan Home. The family had disowned their father because uh, he was like a homeless guy. They didn't know he was sitting on big bucks. So they took it to court and they, they said, we're going to drag this out to court, so settle with us. They took $6 million. Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim took $7 million, and the Diskin Orphan Home took $7 million. And think about it. Because, I mean, it was, it was a clear miracle where the Rebbe Hashem said, this is a yeshiva that does things properly, bekashrus. Okay, here's a matanim and hashamayim. Harbe drachim lamakam. Don't think, yeah, if I'm very honest, then how am I supposed to make a buck? There are many, many ways God could get you the buck. I want to share with you, so when I was learning in Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim, I was in Queens. I used to very often come home for Shabbos. You're really technically supposed to be in the Yeshiva for Shabbos. I used to like to come home on Shabbos to Brooklyn. I used to walk to Harav Avigdor Miller, Zechitz Halak Levrach. You ever hear of Rav Miller? I'm sure you hear of Rav Miller. Now my parents were on the other side of the neighborhood. It was about a 50 minute walk. And I used to do that every Shabbos. I want to share with you something that I heard Rav Miller say. Rav Miller would point out, Yaakov Avinu, he's running away from Esav. And he runs, he starts off in Be'er Shava in the south. He's running northeast. He passes by the Temple Mount. He goes to Basel. He's about to get to Charon. And he says, Oy vai, I pass by the place where my forefathers prayed and I didn't pray. So Yaakovino makes an about face and he goes back down south. And he heads to the Har Habayis. And he has a dream. And in his dream he sees... He sees heavenly angels. They're going up and down the ladder. They're going up and down the ladder. So Rav Miller pointed out, Yaakov sees angels, but they're in a dream, they're in a prophecy. Fast forward 20 years. What happens? Yaakov Vinu was in the house of Lavan. He's coming back from Lavan's house, and he comes back to where he started, and Yaakov comes to a place called Machanoyim. And what does Yaakov see in Machanoyim? Yaakov sees heavenly angels. But this time, he's not dreaming. This time, he's awake. He sees angels in a state, a state of being awake. So Rav Miller asked, what happened to Yaakov Avinu? Why at first he sees the angels only in a dream, only in a prophecy, and then 20 years later, he actually sees angels in the real flesh while he's awake? What did Yaakov do in these 20 years that he elevated himself, that now he's seeing angels awake? What did Yaakov do in those 20 years? Was he learning in the yeshiva in those 20 years? No. Was he... uh, in a koilo somewhere? Was he in a mikvah somewhere? What did he do in 20 years that he elevated himself to the level that now he sees angels awake? And Rev Miller said, you know what he did? He went to work. And he had a conniving thief as a boss, as his father-in-law. And he put in a hard day's work. And when he had a runny nose, he didn't call the boss and say he has 102 fever and he's sick. He went in anyway. And even though Lavan tricked him and stole from him, Yaakov dealt honestly. And working honestly brings a person, in a certain sense, greater aliyah. That before Yaakov went to work, he only saw Malachim in his, 
dreams, and now Yaakov is seeing angels in the flesh. You know, we, we don't think this way. Do we think of a tzaddik like that? Do we realize that Moshe Rabbeinu saw Nevoah because he was careful from stealing, that Yaakov Avinu elevated himself because he put in a hard day's work and he didn't cut corners when, when he had a, un, a dishonest boss? Did you know that in all the writings of the Rambam, you know, the Rambam wrote something called Yad HaChazaka. The Rambam only refers to one person as a tzaddik. That means it's not so easy to earn the title tzaddik. There's only one person in the whole writing of the Rambam referred to as a tzaddik. These, these are the comments of the Rambam in the laws of rental. Hilchay Schiros, Perak Yud Gimel Halachazayin. Says the Rambam, Kiderech Shemuzhar Balabayish Lo Yigzos Charoni, the same way the boss has to be careful to pay the poor man on time, Velo Yaakvo, and not withhold wages, Kach Muzhar Haoni Shelo Yigzom Lachazabalabayish. The man, the working man, has to be careful not to cut corners of his responsibility. Vechayev Lavoid Bechol Koychay, you're obligated to work with all your strength. Says the Rambam, Shahare Yaakov Hatzadik Omar Kibachol Koichi Avadati Asavichen. Yaakov, the righteous man, said, With all my strength, I worked for love. And think about it. What made Yaakov a tzaddik? The Rambam could have said, You know why Yaakov is a tzaddik? Because he learned in the Yeshiva Shema Ever for 14 years and he didn't sleep at night. The Rambam could have said Yaakov was a tzaddik because. He remained in purity until his first child. No! Yaakov was a tzaddik because he worked hard. And even though his boss was a thief, he didn't repay in kind. So we see some very important uh, ideas here. We learn that in a certain sense, working honestly and ethically could bring a person the greatest aliyah in their life. Maybe in a sense more than learning. Maybe in a sense more than that. You know, Rav Moshe Feinstein writes an amazing chidosh. You know, in Chodesh Elul, where's Chagai? We were just talking about uh, the nevuah of Chagai was on Rosh Chodesh Elul and then on the 24th day of Elul. That's your birthday, right? Okay, mark it on your calendar. Okay. In Chodesh Elul, we blow the shofar. When do we blow the shofar? We blow the shofar after davening. Rav Moshe writes, why do we blow the shofar after davening? Isn't it supposed to uh, awaken us to do tshuva? Isn't the purpose of the shofar to awaken us to do tshuva? So then, shouldn't we blow the shofar before davening? We should come to shul, blow the shofar, and everyone will daven better. Or maybe blow the shofar before we learn. Says Rav Moshe, no. You think the purpose of the shofar is to wake you up to daven better? Like davening is the main thing? The purpose of the shofar is to get you to do tshuva. And you know what we need to do tshuva on more than anything else? Working honestly. So we blow the shofar before people go to work. Because that's the focus of the tshuva. Not to daven better. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? We come to, comes the month of Elo, 
everybody, uh, you know, I have to start davening better and learning more. And you do. We do have to daven better. And we do have to learn more. But more than that, we have to be more careful in the money that's in our, in our account. So you say, I know, very nice. I know about this already. I know it's important to be honest, but look, business is business, and nice guys finish last, and this is not really going to be good for my work. So I want to continue to read the words of the Rambam. The Rambam then continues to report to us the exact portfolio of the Avais. You know, the Avais were very wealthy people. Avram was a wealthy guy. Yitzchak was a wealthy guy. Yaakov, does anybody know who was the wealthiest of all the Avais? So listen to this. Ramam writes, By Avraham it says, Avraham kaved me'oid. Avraham was very wealthy. By Yitzchak, Vayigdal ha'ish, Vayelech, Had ha'loch, Vagadal ad me'oid. Yitzchak was very wealthy. By Yaakov Avinu says the Ramam, Vayifroitz ha'ish me'oid, me'oid. Yaakov was very, very wealthy. Why, says the Rambam? Yaakov HaTzadik Omar Ki Bechol Koichi Avadeti Asavichen Lefikach Notal Schar Af Ba'olam Hazeh So it's not just honesty propels you to closeness to Hashem. It's not just that it elevates you. It's good for business. It's good for business. A person, you know, there's a rule in general. Schara Bahai Amaleka. It's important to know this. You don't get paid back in this world. There's no reward in this world. You could do mitzvahs. Don't think, oh, I did a mitzvah, Hashem's going to reward me in this world. There's no reward in this world. Reward is in the next world. What you could get in this world is that if the Rebani Shalalam sees that a person is on the right path, then the Rebani Shalalam could, so to speak, give you more blessing in your life to allow you to continue to do mitzvahs, but it's not reward, there's no reward in this world. But there are certain good deeds that you're even rewarded in this world, says the Rambam, honesty is so powerful, you could get reward even in this world. And this was the topic uh, Rabbi Katz, I think, wanted me to speak about. And then we're going we're gonna to segue into uh, another subject as well. I'll tell you a story. When I was in Abris many years ago, now I don't know how it is in Europe. In Europe, people are very polite and people are very uh, courteous. But there are other countries, I'm not going to say where, where it's not, it's not like that. I'm not going to, you know. So, you know, in Europe at a wedding, everyone sits very um, politely and everyone's participating and looking at the chuppah and silent. There are other countries west of here, I'm not going to say where, we're at a chuppah, everyone's on their phone, and it's noisy. And you know, in Europe, by under the chuppah, the rabbi speaks. Yeah? In America, if the rabbi would speak, he would be removed immediately. No, there's no speaking at a chuppah. No, no, nobody's listening to that. But at a bris, they, there are still speeches in America. But I can say that people pay a lot of attention. And especially when the grandfather gets up to speak, it's like, you know, everyone's doing the grandfather a toiva. You know, let the old man get up and say a few words. Fine, but, and I can't say I'm always paying attention to uh, every speech at a bris, but at a certain bris, something the grandfather said caught my attention. 
The grandfather was a, a, a doctor, Dr. Burgida, and he was talking about his father who came over from Europe. And he was saying that his father came from Europe, he came to Canada, and uh, a lot of his father's friends came over to the States or to Canada, and they didn't really see the nachas that they were hoping for. Not all their children or grandchildren sort of stayed on the straight and narrow. And this Dr. Brigida, his father felt that, you know, all of his children, all of his grandchildren, they, they stayed on the straight and the narrow. He saw nachas from all of his descendants. And he once confided in his son that he feels he knows the reason for this. He says it's because a lot of his friends, they came over from America, and in order, so to speak, to make ends meet, they had to cut corners a little bit in terms of honesty. And this Dr. Brigida said his father said he was always careful not to take anything, not to take a penny, not to cut any corners in terms of business ethics. And he believes that the reason why he was Zoycha to Doiroi Sisham Vairachim is because of his honesty in business. And, um, you know, I tell you, you could go to a hundred speeches. And if somebody were to tell you what their zechus was, why they had, you know, Erlecha children and grandchildren, usually this is not a very glamorous and popular uh, reason that, that, that they attribute it to. But I'll tell you the truth, I looked around and I found a very powerful source of this in none other than the writings of the author of the Bnei Yisachar, Reb Tzvi Elimelech of Dinov, in the Sefer Agra de Pirka. And I tell you that had he not said this, it would be impossible to say this. He says, I tell you, Had he not said this, I would be scared to say this. And I say it with great sensitivity. Because, at least in America, one of the biggest challenges of this generation are what they call kids at risk, youth at risk, youth that, you know, don't stay with the fold, don't continue in the path of their parents. And it's, it's very painful to talk about. It's very painful to even give any reasons. And again, I'm not giving any reasons. But to ignore the comments of the Igra de Perica would also be a disservice. So I want to share with you what he writes. The Igra de Pirka writes in the name of his great Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem He says the essential ingredient in raising children. You hear this? The essential ingredient in raising children is that you feed them with kosher money. Not kosher food. He's not talking about, oh, make sure you get badats and not the mahadrin and not the rabban. No, that's not, that's secondary. The essential ingredient in raising children is that the money with which you buy their food is kosher money. And then I saw, they showed this to Rav Aaron Cutler. Rav Aaron Cutler write that it's Beferish in the Yushalmi and in the Zayhar. So think about sort of, you know, how the Yetzirah sort of distorts our perception of what are the main things in Judaism and what are secondary. In most people's eyes, this has been relegated to uh, like a secondary place. This has been relegated to, okay, you know, first, learning, davening, 
Taras HaMishpacha, Kashros. And then this, eh, you know, it's a nice idea. But sometimes, like the Mesil Susharam says, Chasidus Ho'amiti Hurachayk Mitzir Sechleinu. Sometimes the most important things are often the furthest from our mind. If I may, I would like to segue into a little bit of a different uh, idea. Um, they're very beautiful that the community comes together and uh, dedicates time to learning, to study for these couple of days. As a community, sometimes it's important to recognize aside from my personal obligation, so we always have people who are askanim, people who do for the community, they're involved in communal affairs, and some people are sort of, that's their calling and they're cut out for it, and other people are more private, but even a private individual should have a certain recognition and appreciation that even private people in the community have a very important rule, a role as members of the community. I want to talk again, let's go back to Moshe Rabbeinu. But I would like primarily to come to this week's parasha, Parshas Vayechi. You know, we've been on many trips, actually even when we came to Amsterdam on Shabbos, we brought a tiny Sefer Torah with us. Really, it looks like a big mezuzah. Do you remember the Sefer Torah that we had? It's so small... Do you remember this? Um, actually, uh, Reb Nassim was our, our Baal Kairi, so we had taken it to Morocco. It was a uh, Parshas Vayichi. And Parshas Vayichi is a Parshas Susuma. You know what a Parshas Susuma means? That usually between the end of one Parsha and the beginning of the next Parsha, there is space in the Sefer Torah. There's space. So that even from afar, the Baal Kairi could see, okay, this is where the new Parsha begins. Or sometimes it's on the next line. Parshas Vayichi is Susuma Legamri. It's completely sealed shut. Which means, you don't even know it's a new Pasuk. Vayifru Vayirbu Ma'id, Vayichi Yaakov. It's the next word. It's Susuma Legamri. And Rashi says very powerful words. Rashi says, Lama Parshazuhi Susuma. Why is this Parsha sealed shut? Because Yaakov Avinu passed away. The eyes and the heart of the Jewish people were sealed shut because of the bondage. Okay? Listen very carefully. That the Jewish people were in Egypt and because of the bondage, our eyes and our heart were sealed shut. So to indicate that our eyes and our heart were sealed shut, Parshas Vayigash Vayichi is Susuma Lagamri. There is no, there is no separation at all in between. But let's stop and pause for a moment. What do you mean it's just that our eyes and our heart are sealed shut? What's that supposed to mean? Our eyes are sealed shut. Our heart was sealed shut. Just say, we were brutalized. We were demoralized. We were pulverized, we were, we were beaten. What's the focus on our eyes and our heart are sealed shut? You ever think about that? And then Hashem gave me a great gift. We go to Parsha Shemais and we read about Moshe Rabbeinu. And of course we know a very well-known Pasuk, Vayigda Moshe, Moshe grew up, Vayitzei Alechav, he went out to his brethren, 
Vayar b'sivloisam, he saw their suffering. Remember what Rashi says? Nasan enov, he placed his eyes, v'liboy and his heart, liois meitzar aleim, to be distressed over them. Ah, now I know why you need eyes. Now I know why you need a heart. You need eyes to be able to see someone else's pain. You need a heart to be able to, to feel someone else's pain. And now we understand what happened in Mitzrayim. You know when a person cannot see and, and feel someone else's pain? When they're so caught up with their own saras, with their own lives, with their own difficulties. You know, we all get like that sometimes. You know how you feel when life is overwhelming? I can't feel worried about someone else. I can't even get myself together. When a person is so self-absorbed that they can't see and feel the pain of someone else, Claudius is in big trouble. You know why? Because God deals with us quid pro quo, measure for measure. And if you can't look and feel someone else's pain... Then Minashamayim, God says, I know you're suffering, but Kibiachal, I cannot look, see, feel your pain because I have to deal with you measure for measure. And then, like they say in the United States, Houston, we've got a problem. Because how are we ever going to get out of Egypt? If God will not look at our pain and God will not feel our pain because we are so self-absorbed that we can't see or feel the pain of someone else. So what, what's going to happen? We're going to be stuck in Egypt. <coughs> so we need someone to break the cycle. Who's going to break the cycle? Comes the Raya Mehemna. Comes Moishion Shel Yisrael. Moishra Rabbeinu. And he goes out to his brethren. Vayetzei Alechav. Vayar B'Sivloisam. Nasan Einav, the Levi, Leos Meitzar Aleim, he opens up his eyes. He feels the pain of someone else. Friends, Re'ezepele. You know what happens when Moshe Rabbeinu goes out to see and feel the pain of Kal Yisrael? The next Pasuk. Vayar Eloikim Espinei Yisrael Vayeda Eloikim says Rashi, Nasan Alehem Lev. God says, Oh, I feel your pain now. Veloy Helamenov, I don't ignore you now. Once one man goes out to see and feel the pain of someone else, God says, I'll respond in kind. The most basic duty of a member of a community is to have their eyes and heart open to be able to see. Maybe the person next to me in the next couple of days, maybe they need help with their job, maybe they need some help with their kids, maybe they need help with a shidduch. Maybe I could do something, maybe I could just listen to them. At the very least, to look around and to feel the pain of someone else, that brings salvation to the whole Jewish people. Did you know that before Moshe Rabbeinu was a prophet, what do I have? A few more minutes? Before Moshe Rabbeinu was a prophet, does anybody know who prophesied before Moshe Rabbeinu? Aaron. Aaron. How old was Moshe when he started prophesying? He's around 80 years old. Yeah? 
But when God comes to Moshe and he says, Hey Moshe, take the Jews out of Egypt. Moshe says, Nah, shlach nabiyat tishlach. Send the guy you usually send. Rashi says, who's that? Aroin. Aroin? Yeah, Rashi says, in Yechezkel, Perak Beis, Hashem had already been speaking to Aroin that, to tell the Jews to stop worshipping idols. Anybody know for how long God had been speaking to Aroin before God spoke to Moshe? From the time that Aaron was three years old. Hashem had been speaking to Aaron for the last 80 years. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu, he hears the voice of God. Moshe says, me? I thought you're, you're, you know, you're, you're close with my older brother Aaron. Shlach nabiyat tishlach. Speak to him. What did Aaron do at three years old <laughs> that God was speaking to him already? What did he do? When Moshe Rabbeinu was put into the water, do you remember what the Pasuk says? Moshe Rabbeinu was put in the water and Basya Bas Paroi takes her, takes the baby, and the Pasuk says, Vatiftach, Vatireu es Hayeled, Vihine Nar Boicha, Vatachmalalav. First, the child is called a Yeled. Then the child is called a nar. The Balaturim says, the nar was not the yeled. Listen to how the Balaturim reads the Pasuk. Vatiftach vatireu es hayeled. Basya sees the kid Moshe crying. She didn't know, is it a Jewish kid, a Gentile kid? Vihine nar boicha. The older child on the riverbank was crying. By the way, the gematria vihine nar, excuse me, nar boicha is aroin. The older brother was crying. Ah, oh, the older brother could cry for the younger brother. Must be a Jewish kid. It must be a Jewish kid. Someone who could cry for their brother, it must be a Jewish kid. Rabbi Shloima Arieli, he, he's uh, the brother of Usher Arieli. He wrote um, the Rabbi Kiva Eger's very in-depth svarim on Shas. He says, one thing we know about Aaron HaKoyin, that from three years old, he had a heart for his brother. He cried for his brother. He cried for his brother. He was Zoycha Tenevua at three years old. However, even though he cried for his brother, and he was a prophet, there's one thing he didn't do yet. He wasn't yet Zoycha to wear the Choshen. The Choshen is the ornament of the Kohen Gadol that he wears on his chest, that on it was the, the Urim Vitumim. And Hashem would communicate with the Kohen Gadol through this. You know why Aaron didn't wear it yet? Because even though he had the ability to cry for his brother, but he didn't yet reach the following Madriga. That when Moshe told Aaron, you know, Aaron, um, I have some news for you. I hope you'll take it well. Hashem selected me to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. What was Aaron's reaction? The purity of heart of Aaron HaKoyen was that he felt joy for his brother's success. See, a lot of us have an easy time feeling empathy and sympathy if someone else is suffering. It's much harder to feel happy when someone else is blessed and successful. Yeah, we all, our heart goes out when somebody has a challenge. But you need more generosity of spirit and more, more purity of heart to feel happy on someone else's success. 
Do you know how long it took Aaron to reach, to climb the level from when he was crying for his brother till when he was joyous for his brother? It took another 80 years. But when he reached that level, God blessed him. His heart was so pure. He now was Zoha to be eligible to wear the Chayshen. So even somebody, quietly a member of the community, it's so important that our eyes are open and our heart is open to see what is someone else experiencing, what is someone else going through. If I can't help them physically, materially, at least I could, my heart could go out to them. And the highest madrega of all is to feel happy for someone else. And my bracha to all of you is that you should have many, many simchas in all of your families and happiness and, and success. And an even greater bracha, you should feel happiness for your friends and their happiness and their success. Thank you very much. Bracha v'atzlacha. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.